Welcome to In Context and Culture, a podcast hosted by pastors Corey Majors and Trent Roseman, intended to clarify and comment on critical issues pertaining to theology, the Bible, and life in the church. Now, enjoy the podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the In Context and Culture podcast. I don't know if you're able to watch this on Instagram, but we actually have this in video format now, so it's good to actually see you, Corey, in person. Uh, you know, you're just as bald in person as you sound on the radio. So, and you are a handsome man. I'm just saying. <laughs> hey, we are glad that you're uh, joining us on the podcast. It's Monday morning. We're here for another episode. We'll be in Revelation chapter one, verses nine through twenty, finishing what is the first chapter of the book of Revelation. So we're excited about that. We do hope that you've been following along. Uh, I just want to mention uh, that we do have an Instagram page. So go follow us on Instagram at in context and culture it's all spelled out and you'll notice if you've been following us both on our podcast and on instagram that we uh, are doing a giveaway Uh, this week we just announced that we're going to give away what is one of our favorite commentaries in fact i have it right here it's gk beale's revelation a shorter commentary that's called a shorter commentary it is still 550 or so pages so uh corey do you have it right there as well I have it right here there as well. There you go. See, I have mine open because I know I'm going to reference it at some point. So um, we want to give a copy, a brand new copy away to you for free. Here's the way that you can be a part of that. You need to follow our Instagram page and you need to share on your story a screenshot of you watching uh, our podcast um, and tag us. If you don't tag us, we don't know that you shared it. So make sure you tag us. Uh, we'll, of course, repost that on our story and you can be in the running to win this commentary. We'll mail it straight to you. Uh, once we uh, see everybody, and everybody's been given a chance to share that on Monday morning, actually the time that this episode drops, uh, we will be announcing the winner, and then we'll send you a private message for your address. So, hey, thanks so much again for listening in. Like I said, Revelation 1, 9 through 20. Corey, do you want to just start us out? and just go ahead and read the text. You bet. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like, the shining, was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, 
and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so if you have noticed anything about this passage already, it's a little bit longer than the other passages that we've covered, um, and so we're going to have to go through it pretty quickly. It's also the first passage that really includes a lot of symbolism. Uh, we're going to follow our fourfold structure of context, Christ, culture, and controversy. Uh, so, Corey, why don't you take us away? We're going to be kind of, uh, interestingly enough, in different sections at a time in this. And when we talk about context, there's a lot of context given in verses 9 through 11 when John talks about where he was when he received this revelation um, and the instructions that he was given. So, Corey, let's just look um, verse 9 through 11. Anything stick out to you that I think that, that you think is just worth noting? Well, I think uh, the first thing is that John identifies himself. Um, you know, in his Gospels, he doesn't identify himself. He just says the one whom Jesus loved. But here he identifies himself. But he identifies himself as their brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. And So, so all they're of being those, the churches. Yes. Okay. Um, and so uh, it's it's not as if those things are mutually exclusive. Because... He is a member of the kingdom. It means that he is going to encounter tribulation, and he must endure through that, just as all of those that he is writing to will have to as well. So, and, and he is, and he's there just because of the testimony that he's given, the witness that he's given to Christ. And so, John had, wasn't doing anything extraordinary. He was just living out the Christian life, sharing the gospel, and as a result, he's been, he, he is, he is enduring this tribulation at that moment. And so the, tri the tribulation that he's enduring, at least presently, is he's been exiled. He's without Christian community. And what I, th what I think is so interesting about this passage, right, is he's not um, tied to a local church at this present time, right, because he's not able to. I mean, there's a um, providential hindrance here. He cannot be joined to a local church. And yet he still sees worship on the Lord's Day as that important. Right. Yeah. And so he's still waking up. It's Sunday morning. It's the day that Christ resurrected, um, as was common for the church to gather on um, uh, post you know, resurrection to gather and worship on the Lord's Day on Sunday. And so he's woke up. He's worshiping. He's, quote unquote, in the spirit, whatever exactly that fully means. He's worshiping God and uh, and he's writing. He'll explain it a little bit in a minute, but he's writing to other Christians who are also, as you mentioned, enduring tribulation. And he ties that tribulation um, to the kingdom, right? They're part of the kingdom, and the kingdom will endure tribulation until it comes in its fullness when Christ returns. And he says what they need is, hey, patient endurance. So I'm your partner throughout this tribulation as we patiently endure as the people, the citizens of God's kingdom until the king returns, right? And it's on this day that he's worshiping God that something crazy happens, and he's recounting it as basically saying, hey, I heard something. I, I heard a voice. And that voice was like what? It was a trumpet. It was this auditory loud noise and uh, what does he say? He says, I heard the voice like a trumpet, and the voice said, write what you see in a book. So he's going to see some things visually. This is going to be a vision. See, uh, write what you see. Send it to seven churches. Now, of course, we've already covered those are seven literal churches. You see in verse 11 those churches, the names of them, Ephesus, Smyrna, and so on. Um, and he's supposed to send in a book, write it down, what he sees, send it to churches. Right? Um, I think this is worth noting, and I want you to comment more on context, but I think it's worth noting there's a lot of times in the book of Revelation where John hears something, but then he sees something not different per se, 
but um, sees a bigger picture of what he heard, right? So in chapter five of the book of Revelation, he hears a lion, he sees a lamb. In chapter seven, he hears 144,000, he sees a great multitude. Here's what you see in this passage. He hears a voice like a trumpet, then he looks and sees like one of, or sorry, like a son of man, right? Um, I think that's just really unique, right? And what he sees kind of puts him back on the floor, if you will. Yeah. So, and he sees, who does he see? Well, he sees Christ. So is it fitting now to turn to our Christ section already, or is there any more matters of context you want to mention? Well, I think it's important, too, that to, to think about the trumpet. Like, you know, if you look in the Old Testament, every time there's a trumpet mentioned, I mean, the the... the Gosh, what am I? I don't. Trumpeteers is not the right word, but but uh, trumpet blasters. The, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I don't know, but um, they would go out before the army, and also if you think about Jericho, they were they were announcing the presence of the Lord that He was there and He was the one that was going to conquer. And so, like, if you think about trumpets in the context of conquering in the Old Testament, it's very fitting that you have a trumpet blast here announcing the presence of God who is the victor and tells His church to overcome. And, uh, and I just think it's interesting that it says, I, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Uh, you know, you don't usually think about visualizing or seeing a voice. Mm. Now he's turning around and he's, like you said, he's seeing something much greater and that is Christ in the middle of his church. So, yeah. Do you... It's like, I thought I was alone here, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and and the, and the point of this passage is that you're not alone, right? As the yeah, church, the presence uh, of God is with his church, right? Even with a guy that's exiled on Patmos, he can't escape. I mean, it's like David, right? I can't escape the presence of God, right? If I go in the depths of Sheol, you are there, right? Um, yeah, it's a good note. And I think, I mean, you know, I'm jumping to culture here, but like, I think it's, impres- it's important for us today in the, in the context in which we find ourselves, and so many people are isolated, um, that they feel like they're away from the community of believers, but they are not away mm. from the Lord. That's good. So let's hey, jump in. You want to jump into Christ? How about you that do That sounds kind of <laughs> odd. <laughs> no, you're fine. Verses okay. 12 through 18. Uh, so he turns to see the voice that was speaking to him. And on turning, he sees seven golden lampstands, which later in verse 20, it'll explain um, that uh, the, the, those are the seven churches, right? So he sees seven golden lampstands when he turns, and in the midst of the lampstands, like one, or sorry, one like a son of man. So Jesus is in the midst of the churches, right? Uh, the midst of the lampstands, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, and then he goes on to explain what he sees when he sees the Son of Man. So why don't you explain some of those important symbols and important, um, uh, yeah, imagery representations when he sees Jesus? Well, I, I think the first thing is important that it's he sees the majesty of Christ in this, and I think all of all of these things that he sees is wrapped up in that term majesty, uh, because it's the fullness of who Christ is. You know, Christ laid aside his glory and coming um, in the flesh, and now he has, uh, the, the Lord, or God has glorified him once again, and we see this glory and this majesty on Christ. And here in this passage, whenever we're talking about, whenever John writes about the long robe 
with a golden sash on his chest. You, you see the majesty of a high priest because that was that was the, the wardrobe, if you will, of the priests. And so this one that has been the atoning sacrifice for his people, um, you know, like how much comfort would that bring to somebody that's in the midst of tribulation is that we have a high priest and, and our sins have been forgiven and he has made atonement for us. But you also see here this the majesty of wisdom and purity because he has... Uh, this hair that is white like wool, like snow, and the eyes like a flame of fire. So there's this wisdom and purity there. And, and you know, again, I, I want to make mention that each one of these characteristics, you're, you're going to see Christ apply those to the individual churches in the context in which they sit. But, um, but here, just it's important to see that these eyes like a flame of fire, what is fire used for? It's used to purify. Mm. And so he's constantly purifying his church and he has this great wisdom that the church will need and then you see things like the burnished the feet like burnished bronze um you see a sharp two-edged sword and this word burnished bronze here uh, revelation is the only context in all of greek literature that you find that and um the the burnished bronze is is thought to be a, a metal more precious and stronger uh, than gold. And so uh, it will relate to one of the churches later on. But but if you see that with the, the, sh- the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, you see the majesty of a warrior king here. Hmm. And, and that's what these people are going to need too that are going through tribulation, this idea that God is a conqueror. Those burnished bronze feet can stamp out any opposition hmm. uh, that would come against him. And so I, I think in seeing and, and can the crush majesty, a serpent, right? Yeah, for sure. Right. For sure. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, uh, you know, taking it all the way back to Genesis 3.15 there and uh, that promise that he would do that. And that's exactly what we find in Revelation is that he will cast death and hell and, the, and Satan into the lake of fire. And yeah. So, can I comment on the, the sword out of the mouth? Sure. Right. So God's word. Um, if you look in, you know, uh, for example, Jesus walking the earth in Matthew chapter 10, um, there's this really interesting line because earlier on in uh, the gospel accounts when Jesus came, uh, Luke chapter 2, and uh, the, the, uh, the angels announce uh, the arrival of the Lord, um, they say, you know, uh, glory, to God, glory to God in the highest, I think is what they say, and peace to those on whom his favor rests or peace mm-hmm. to those in whom he is pleased. I think that's how it's worded. Uh, yeah. Forgive me if I'm wrong there. Um, but the Lord came to bring peace. And that peace isn't necessarily like the world peace, like the Miss America world peace, right? But is peace amongst people in God, right? Um, that there's hostility between uh, um, uh, people and God because of their sin, right? And right. uh and yet, when Jesus walks the earth, he has this one line that kind of like perplexes, I think, probably people that were following him when he says, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I mean, you're mm-hmm. thinking, okay, wait, what? Right? Uh, <laughs> like, are we about to take up arms? Right? Peter thought so, because that's why he chopped off the guy's ear. Right? No. Um, but uh, Jesus is saying there that, hey, there will be division amongst even families because on account of those that follow the word of God and those who don't. Right, the word of God will um, have a, a decisive, divisive uh, way about it when people obey it or disobey it. Right, mm-hmm. um, and later on in the book of Hebrews, it says the word of God 
is a living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit or joints and marrow, um, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So the word of God literally out of his mouth comes uh, this uh, uh, announcement of who he is, what he's done, and that word divides, right? Intentionally yeah. divides the intentions of your uh, mind and your heart and divides even families, right? For those who will, will obey it and those who will disobey it. So I think it's just kind of a cool imagery there. And then, of course, uh, lastly, you see his glory uh, upon his face. Um, I think it's just important to note in this section too, and I hope I'm not getting too far ahead of you, but in verses uh, is it 12 through 16, you see what John sees. And then in verse 17 and 18, you see what uh, the Son of Man says about himself, right? So there's almost kind of two sides to there, right? But, but before I get there, what's so interesting about how John describes Jesus is John knew Jesus. Like he walked with yeah. him. Like he ate lunch with Jesus, right? I mean, I had done that, right? Uh, and so he knew exactly what Jesus looked like, uh, how Jesus acted. Um, um, he, he knew Jesus slept, right? He knew Jesus prayed. I mean, he, he did life with Jesus for years, right? And mm-hmm. at this moment when he's seeing uh, the, the Son of Man in his full glory, which I don't even know how to better to say it than that, he's not necessarily just like... Uh, Pro, uh, is it prostrate? Like not just like prostrate before him, but he's like petrified, right? Yeah. I mean, he is taken aback by what he sees. Uh, any comments on that? I mean, isn't that unique? Well, I, I think it is. I think it is characteristics of the prophets of God too. Like in the Old Testament prophets, whenever they came into contact with uh, the, you know, the the. God who's high and lifted up. I mean, Isaiah did the very same thing. Like he fell on his face as though dead. And so uh, it's a little different context because Isaiah in that point, you know, God purifies him and, and, um, and commissions him, um, to go out. But, but in, in the same way, like John is receiving a commission here to write to these churches and so I think you see a continuity in the prophetic voice from the Old Testament prophets all the way through uh, Revelation here is that the, the, the message is Christ. And, and you see his reaction to him because, yes, John was one of the ones on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he just saw a glimpse of the glory of God. Uh, he didn't see he didn't see the full glory of the resurrected Christ, and I mm. think, you know, sometimes we come into a, a worship service and we forget who we're coming there to worship, is the resurrected Christ, and we come in a little flippantly, a little, um, you know, nonchalant. Whenever we need to remember who it is that we're praying to, who it is that we're worshiping, and who it is we're getting ready to hear from, like this is the this is the message of the resurrected Christ. And whenever people saw the resurrected Christ like John here, they fell on their face as though dead. And so I I think that that's important for us to remember who Jesus is and the fear of the Lord and all of those things. Yes, we have grace and we're forgiven, but that doesn't mean we we are irreverent whenever it comes to Christ. I don't yeah. know if I'm getting way off subject there no, or not. But, no, I, well, I don't think so at all. I think what characterizes a lot of Old Testament saints um, in a positive way is the fact that they feared the Lord. 
Mm -hmm. right? Old Testament tells us in, in the book of Proverbs and the book of Psalms, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, and so um, when we rightly understand the holiness of God and therefore our unholiness, uh, we properly come to fear the Lord as we ought to. Um, and we ought to recognize um, uh, and, and even have within ourselves a proper fear of the Lord, even as believers, um, that we, we fear um, uh, uh, the fact that he will come and wage war against those that live in sin, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's interesting, though, um, similar to kind of what you mentioned about Isaiah, is you have this full, petrified fear coming from John, and the response is not, you need to stay afraid. Like, yeah. the response is, fear not. Like, yeah. and that's really unique. But, but you see that in the, in the Bible too. I mean, you see Mary, she's terrified when the angel Gabriel comes. Zachariah is terrified when the angel Gabriel comes. And yet the response from angel the angel Gabriel even is fear not, right? Yeah. For, I bring to, for, I, for I have come to bring you good news, right? And for those who properly fear the Lord, uh, they in contact with the Lord in the future ought not truly fear in the same ways an unbeliever should fear because they have a relationship with God and, 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 and God will... Um, ultimately bring them good news, right? Uh, this is good news that John is getting to tell the churches ultimately because God has fulfilled his promises and they will receive the new heavens and the new earth with the Lord, right? And so yeah. um, uh, he says, fear hey, not. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say one other thing in regard to that. He not only spoke to him, but he laid his right hand on him. Yeah. And that this hand that that holds the seven churches and the seven stars and it's really the right hand is the hand of power and authority and so he here's the one who you know holds the keys of death and hades and he puts that right hand on john and says fear not um and so i think it's you you not only hear the word of god you see the touch of god uh, on him at that moment to bring about this comfort and peace uh, in his life isn't it crazy to note I mean, the way that God's hand is used in the Old Testament and here in Revelation, you've got the hand of the Lord going against Pharaoh in Egypt, bringing the plagues. Yeah. You've got the hand of the Lord writing on the wall beside, uh, behind, uh, uh, is it? Darius. Uh, uh, yeah, is it Darius? Sorry, I can't remember. No, it was, it was uh, uh, Belshazzar, right? Oh, okay. Bel yeah, is yeah. that right? You're right. You're Am right. I right? You're right. Yeah, uh, basically... Um, you've been weighed, you've been measured, and you found wanting or whatever. Uh, and ultimately that allowed Darius's army to come up and, and kill them all, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yet this hand that's being brought to John is not a hand of, uh, um, uh, you know, wrath, but rather a hand of reassurance, right? Yeah. I, I'm the Lord. I'm with you. I'm with the churches. I'm the first and the last I'm the living one. This is how he describes himself. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Like, I'm the resurrected king here to be with you, John, while you're exiled in Patmos, right? Like, yeah. no other Christian can get here. But I'm Christ, and I can be here, right? Uh, yeah. It's just awesome. Uh, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Like, there's no better mic drop than basically to say, yeah, everything you're about to hear that's going to go uh, uh, uh kind of seemingly haywire. Yeah, I'm in control of all of it, right? And and ultimately, I've got the keys. Like it's like um I don't I can't think of like a good example of this, but someone trying to find a door to open and you know, they can't get in the house and the person's behind them just dangling the keys, 
Like, <laughs> like I'm, in, I'm in charge here, right? And what assurance that brings to John. So let's look at uh, culture here. And in the culture section, we're trying to talk about, okay, how do we apply this to us in our present time, where we're at? And part of that is just noticing the presence of God with his churches, right? The power of God being the one that has died is forevermore and it has the keys to death and Hades. And uh, um, is um, the patient endurance that that allows, the knowledge of that that allows us to, to go through difficult days with patient endurance, mm-hmm. right? Um, we looked at last week um, uh, God's power being the ruler of all the rulers on earth, thinking about Caesar, thinking about Rome, and our position before him, one of grace, our peace with him that he writes to the churches to give peace, right? And now we're looking at, okay, he's not only... Not only we're positionally before him uh, right, and not only do we have peace from him, which gets us through difficult days, but also he, hey, he's not left us uh, without himself, right? He's here with us, even in these difficult days, even as we're enduring the tribulation. Um, yeah, anything you want to say to that? Well, I just think it, whenever you were saying that, it reminded me of Hebrews chapter 11, where you have all of these great, this great account of all these uh, saints of old who continued in the faith. And, you know, right at the end of that, it said um, that some of them were thrown to beasts and some of them were sawn in two and all of this stuff. And it says, of whom the world was not worthy. But then the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, look back to those people. Um, it says, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, look to Christ, mm. the founder and perfecter of our faith. Is is you know we're we're looking at him constantly and and thinking about you know this this idea this picture of who Christ is right here in the beginning. Boy, that's what they've got to keep coming back to, and that's what he reminds them of in each one of these letters to the churches of this is who I am, and so you you've got to keep going not because of who's gone before, but because of who I am. And so mm-hmm. I think that's really important. That's good. So what I think we've come to know so far is as a church, we will endure tribulation in general. I mean, mm-hmm. tribulation is something we can expect, right? Um, John's experiencing that. The churches were experiencing it. Then we've got brothers and sisters in other parts of the world experiencing grave tribulation. We're going to experience tribulation. It might look a little bit different than other believers around the world, but we can expect this. And instead of the book of Revelation just giving us a, hey, here's a five-step process for you to be able to get through it, um, Revelation is basically pointing us back to Jesus once more and saying, hey, this is who he is, and this is the promises he's made to you, therefore endure, right? And so what we've seen so far in just the first two chapters, I think, is our position before God is given us grace. This is the same grace we're still standing in in Romans 5, uh, 2 right? Uh, We have peace with him because of the blood of the cross. This is Colossians chapter 1, right? Um, So we're not learning anything other than what the Bible's already been teaching us over and over and over, right? And not only that, he's present with us, right? And what has the Bible taught us? We have his spirit indwelling in us, right? And so Christ is still with his churches. He hasn't left them even though days look difficult and times are hard. He's with you, um, positionally, you're right with him, all right? And, uh, and uh, you know, you have peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of these days that no one else in the world has. Uh, this ought to bring us not only joy, but an ample amount of courage, I think, and confidence when circumstances are crazy. Yeah. 
And, and you know, I'm kind of going off script here a little bit. Yeah. But uh, I was reading something recently. It was talking about this whole idea of, of fellowship, of suffering, and the idea of enduring tribulation and persecution. There is a greater fellowship um, with Christ that is a result of that. And so, you know, whenever you, whenever you see Christ, we have to remember that, yeah— He's the resurrected, glorified Christ now, but he has he has walked the path that we're walking as far as tribulation, and and none of us, probably that are listening to this or uh, discussing here, have have gone to the point of shedding our blood like you know, and then we couldn't like Christ did. Mm. Like we're never going to experience the amount of tribulation he did, right. and uh, and we can we can look to him in his glory. We can look to him um, in his suffering. That's good. Well, just watching our time, let's get to a section of um, controversy. Now, we're not here to, just to give you a bunch of hot takes. Uh, we are pastors. That we're are, not. Yeah, we are, we, are, we are pastors that are just <laughs> walking through some of these things, learning about some of these things, and want to kind of share our opinions as well as the opinions of others that have gone before us um, who may disagree with us, and we'll kind of give some of our own. The last two verses here... Um, Let's just talk about them. So verse 19 is often used as a framework for understanding the book of Revelation. So we notice at the very beginning of the book of Revelation uh, that, uh, uh, that John is receiving a revelation from the Lord about what must soon take place. And it also says the time is near. So those are the first two times there's any kind of time mentioned about the book. And now it's mentioned again. Verse 19 says this. Write therefore the things that you have seen. So he just saw the Son of Man, the things that are, and those that are to take place after this, okay? So when it comes to controversy in this, and you can help me out with this, but when it comes to controversy in verse 19, there is uh, differing opinions on how to see these throughout the rest of the book. Now, I think everybody would agree with the fact that, hey, John had already seen some things that have been revealed to him, a.k.a. chapter 1 and chapter 2, um, and there's some things that are, and so he's going to write some things to churches, um, and then there's going to be some things that take place in the future. Now, as far as the things, as it says, that the, the third full thing I just mentioned, the things that are to take place after this, there's differing opinions on how soon that would take place and over what period of time that would take place. So a preterist who interprets the book um, as uh, um, really finding its, the majority of its fulfillment um, at AD 70, the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, um, they're going to think the things that take place after this are like immediate for those churches, like within a couple years, right? Um, uh, an idealist, a millennial, uh, who think that, uh, uh, who, who might think that the book of Revelation is spanning over the whole entire church age, uh, whether it's in specific historical events like a historicist, um, whether it's uh, repetitive like an idealist per se, uh, symbolically, um, or just an amillennial in general who might even take uh, somewhat of a futurist perspective that it's over a, 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 a span of time, I guess that'd be more idealist, is going to say, hey, the things that are going to take place are going to take place over a very long period of time until Christ returns. Right? And then, of course, the futurist might take the perspective of, hey, the things that are to take place, a.k.a. everything after what's written to the churches, aren't going to happen for at least, well, 2,000 years from now, right? Um, yeah. At least, right? So off in the future. Um, so uh, nothing will happen until off in the future and an undesignated time that we'll experience in the future. So that we haven't experienced yet. So any thoughts to that before we look at verse 20 and the difficulty in verse 20? 
Well, I mean, I think you've I think you've explained it really well. Um, I don't I don't know that I have a whole lot to to add to that, except your opinion, right? Well, I mean, I guess I could give my opinion, um, but I, I think <laughs> the simple I think the simple way to see it. I mean, some commentators just say it's simple past, present, future. You know, like this is the vision that John saw. That's the things that you have seen. And I think most commentators would, would agree with that. Yeah. That's not the part that's that's controversial, right? Because everybody agrees it's future. It's just, is it a really immediate future or is it really far future or is it throughout the future? Right. Yeah. And I think the thing we've got to remember is, is that, that this has to be something that is both applicable to the the ones that he is writing to as well as the the people that will read it in the future. Just yeah. like Jesus prayed in John 17, not just for those there, but those who would believe through their testimony. Like right. there there has to be an application that would apply um, for, for all of those times. So no matter which one of those views you take, you can't say that what was being written here didn't apply to the people who received it right then in Asia right. Minor. Right. Um, who were enduring so, tribulation. Yeah. As well as any and, church in the future who'd endure tribulation. Yeah. yeah. So so as long as you apply on both of those, there's probably some liberty there to um, to interpret that how you would, but like don't forget that it has to apply to both both audiences. That's good. I agree. All right, verse 20. Uh, let's look at it. As for the mystery of the seven stars. So in verse 20, um, John is uh, clarifying um, some things to us because the Lord is clarifying some things to John, right? And so he sees in verse 12 all these lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, there's Jesus, the Son of Man. So he explains, okay, the lampstands are the seven churches. And he says, as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, right? They're the angels of the seven churches. Now, this is difficult, right? Um, And it's difficult for a number of reasons. Um, So, Corey, why don't you take it away, and I'll tell you why my view is right. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, So, why don't you take it away, give us some summary, and and we'll kind of have a conversation about that before closing the podcast. Well, and I think it's interesting that it's kind of controversial because most people would read it and think, well, that's real easy. It says angels. It's just angels, right? Right. Yeah. And and that is where some people come down is that those angels were heavenly angel angelic beings. Um, then there's the other position that uh, the angels were considered pastors of the churches. And, and one of the reasons that people interpret it that way is because the word angelion um, – or Angelion, I guess is how it's pronounced. How are you pronouncing it? Is, yeah, is, um, can mean angels or messenger. And so some people take that uh, as a messenger of the church, and so that could be the pastor of the church. Uh, and then a third uh, view of that is also that the, it represents the church uh, itself. And um, But, you know, looking at it, I'm going to let you tell me why you think your opinion is the right one. Yeah, so um, it's a pretty common interpretation to think that uh, the, um, the angelon or angelios or however you say the right tense of that verb in the Greek, um, which is angel, is um, a pastor, right? Um, so it's a it's a pretty common interpretation these days because the word means messenger. I mean, that's what an angel is, is a messenger of the Lord, right? Um, so... Uh, some people take that, and the reason they take that, I mean, it makes sense practically because, okay, John is writing 
um, receiving a revelation from God, from Jesus, uh, from an angel, and he's writing to these churches. And is he writing to an angel of these churches? Well, how is an angel going to communicate to these churches, right? Um, I mean, we've never communicate with an angel before and does every church have an angel like that's kind of weird um, you don't really see that precedent in the other passages of scripture that I'm aware of um, and so well what about a leader in the churches they would communicate they probably would read the the passage uh, or the, the letter that um, uh, John uh, writes to them it would make sense right I mean they're the ones that are gonna be the messenger of the Lord to the church so we've got it figured out right well, no, I don't think so. Here's why, <laughs> right? Um, the reason I don't think that's the case is the word messenger is never used in any point in time in the New Testament, right, which we're New Testament believers, is not in any point in time in the New Testament for a leader of a church. It's not, right? The leaders of the churches are um, uh, elders, actually, right? A lot of times we use the word pastor in Southern Baptist life, but it's the same word as elder, right? Pastoring is something they do. Pastoring just means shepherding, right? So um, it's it's always elder. There's never a time that use the word angelos for a pastor, for the position of a pastor. While they might bring a message to the church, they're not an angelios, right? Um, also, um, what which pastor is the is the messenger of the church when uh, every time in the New Testament you see the word elder, it's always plural, right? There's not one particular uh, pastor of each church. Now, we may structure that in like a CEO model in our churches today, and we've already talked about in the podcast that we're not against being one pastor of a church, but it's just pretty foreign in the New Testament, right? And so uh, for John to know that in 2,000 years, most churches and many churches would have one pastor, um, and for most of us to take that term and say, oh, he definitely means pastor in this passage, even though he's using uh, a, a term foreign to the New Testament for the word pastor, um, uh, would be very difficult. Right? I think we have to look outside of even the New Testament to kind of guess at that to be more practical. Secondly, in the whole book of New Testament, I think you said 75 times from a commentary. I thought I saw 66 mm-hmm. times in a commentary. The word angel is used throughout the rest of Revelation. Never once is it talking about a church leader. It's talking about <laughs> an angel, right? And so um, for us to try to get more practical with it, but really uh, uh, to, to make sense of it, is getting outside of, I think, the liberty of what John gives us um, to interpret. Right? I, think, I think it's taking interpretive liberty to say, oh, that's a pastor, right? Um, I have more points, and uh, I, if you push back against me, I'll remember those points, but any thoughts? Well, yeah, I'll push back against you a little okay. bit. Um, I don't know if I'm prepared. You know, we've talked about we've talked about before on a previous podcast the symbolism in, a, in Revelation and how, you know, sometimes you can't just take that literal... Uh, reading a, a most common sense reading because it's going to uh, it's going to lead you astray. So so how would you respond to somebody who says, well, it says angels, but probably it's meaning something else because of uh, Revelation's use of symbolism. Okay, how does it use symbolism in Revelation now? Right, it uses Old Testament imagery, Old Testament verses, right, to talk about what's happening. The Son of Man is an Old Testament passage referring to ultimately Jesus that fulfills that passage. The coming on the clouds, whether or not he's actually going to be like riding a cloud like a skateboard, right, um, which I don't think he's going to be, right, um, <laughs> is, is Old Testament passage. It's using the Bible to help us translate the Bible. Well, you have to go outside of the Bible for the word messenger to be the position of a pastor, right? Right. Um, so... Yeah, it might be more practical, but yeah. And so if it's, if it's symbolic, which I think it totally can be symbolic and not actually an angel over each of the churches, 
I think for it to be symbolic of an actual pastor is to use liberties we're not given within the New Testament scriptures, like a messenger somehow being the office of a pastor, an angel being what a pastor is referred to as. How is there just one and which one is it? If it's just one, when any time in the New Testament, elders, the leaders of the churches are always plural, right? Um, how if the book of Revelation is always referring to angels, and even if it's symbolically, it's never used for church leadership, the other many times it's used. So I think it can be a symbol. So let me be clear with that. I just don't think it can be a symbol in my interpretation. And once again, I've got friends that totally disagree with me on this. And uh, Stephen Smalley, who wrote this, thinks it's a pastor. I can't write that, right? So um, uh, I could totally be wrong, but I don't. I think we're going to have to start from the point of using interpretive liberty that we don't have the liberty to use to get to pastor. All right, and just for a frame of reference, he held up a book whenever he was talking about writing this. Which is like a thousand um, <laughs> pages long. Stephen Smalley, of course, is obviously smarter than me, and he wrote a commentary a thousand pages long. I, I know we got to wind this down, but i got one more pushback for you and see uh, see how you can respond. Yeah. Um, you know, these, church, these uh, letters are written to the angels of the churches, and, you know, there's a rebuke in some of them. And yet the angels that we see in scriptures, the heavenly beings, uh, we don't have any reason to believe they're anything, that their motives are anything but holy. Um, in, in, and so like if they were to receive, uh, an unfallen angel was to receive a rebuke, how do you, uh, how do you uh, respond to that? Can I call you a punk? Right now, <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So, so sorry, I didn't prepare I, you for that. One. Yeah, you didn't prepare me for that. No. Um, yeah, I, I still, once again, I still think we have the interpretive liberty problem. Um, so, I, I don't have an answer for that question. I don't have an answer for a lot of questions in the Book of Revelation. I, I do think there's merit, and I think you do as well, in a, in an, an interpreting the angel to be symbolic, right? But symbolically representing the church itself right? Yeah. And it's heavenly citizenship, right? So not the church is not only earthly, like there's many New Testament passages that talk about the earth, or sorry, the, the church um, testifying to the heavenly realms and um, being right now citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We've been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, right? The marvel and marvelous light. So um, I've seen interpreters, as you have, use angel for just a symbolic representation of the church's um, spiritual state. So instead of talking to a specific angel of the churches, because I don't see in any New Testament passage, I agree, I don't see in any New Testament passage um, uh, um, the ability for me to say, okay, he's rebuking angels, or even for an angel to be over a specific church. I don't know if we have examples of that, right? Um, so, so I don't know. I think it could be that it's symbolic of the church, right? Because I think there's a lot of things, and I think there's, I know I keep going on here, I think there's a lot of precedent in Revelation for different beings and different uh, people and different structures being referred to as the church. So um, I think we're, it's a lot easier to consider the church or the angel being representative of the church than a particular pastor. I don't think there's any easy way of going that direction. 
I don't well, know. If I'm I'll just say I, I've I've been playing uh, I've been playing the opposite side just to yeah, see thanks, how you man. will uh, how you will respond because I actually do believe that they are angelic heavenly angelic beings um, there and I think one of the places in Scripture that helps us understand that how can how can it be written to a church and 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 then the angel not know this before um, before it's given. I think you look in the book of Ephesians and it says that the church is supposed to uh, reveal the manifold wisdom of God. Yeah, that's to, what I was referencing. Um, I just, you know, you know the actual quote. To the spiritual <laughs> beings. And so, like, I do think there is some essence in which the, the people of God receive the message and then they reveal that to, to spiritual forces or mm-hmm. angelic beings. Um, and so, uh, I agree with you. I do think it is... Uh, I do think they are heavenly angels, and so there we go. We can be united, and Thanks we can let exercise. other people disagree with us. But um, anyway, no, hey, I appreciate man. you know, uh, clam the ability to clam up in front of everybody in that last question. So, <laughs> but no, I, even answering that question, I agree with you. I, I don't think a question gives us a new pre. I don't think a question gives us interpretive liberty. Right, and so I argue that you have to take interpretive liberty to get to the angel being a pastor. And just because there's a question that's asked of the passage doesn't say, oh, well, let's go back down the route that we don't have interpretive liberty for, right, to answer that question. We look to the New Testament, like Ephesians 4, to answer that question. Are you there? Yeah. Okay, sorry, my screen froze up. I was uh, gone for a minute. Um, but I'd say we probably better wrap this one up. Uh, it's been a good discussion, and uh, I think... Uh, we would love to hear from you, and so as we uh, as we wind down for this uh, session of in context and culture, we're going to ask you again to don't forget uh, to the um, commentary giveaway. Uh, we're going to be announcing that, and so uh, go and share that and comment on it. And also, uh, we would ask that you would go to your favorite podcast platform and give us a five-star review and also post any questions you might have for us that we can address later on in Revelation. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll shout your name out and answer the question. Oh, absolutely. The best Shameless plug. <laughs> we will see you next time.